0: Good morning, thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson, today I am joined by Professor Emily Owens, author of Consent in the Presence of Force, Sexual Violence and Black Women's Survival in Antebellum New Orleans. Professor Owens is an assistant professor of history at Brown University. She also serves as a faculty fellow at the Center for Study of Slavery and Justice. Her research interests include U.S. slavery, the legal history of race and sexual violence, and the intellectual history of American feminisms. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Owens.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here.
0: And I am very glad you are here. But before we officially begin, I wanted to let to acknowledge a trigger warning um, for our audience members as some of the topics that we may discuss may be triggering for them as we will be discussing topics such as rape, violence, sexual insult of slave women. So just so the audience is aware that that these topics may be triggering for some. But Professor Owens, as we begin today, can you tell us a little bit about the book?
1: Sure. Yeah. I'm so grateful to have the chance to talk to you and to talk to y- your listeners about consent in the presence of force. Um, so, this is a book that is trying to understand uh, basically the legal and social and to some extent economic architecture that um, supported and propelled sexual violation of enslaved women in the antebellum South. Um, so, At a kind of material level, what I'm doing is trying to tell the stories of a few women who were enslaved um, in New Orleans in the Antebellum period, so the early 19th century, um, and whose Enslavement was really centered on their sexual service, so they were enslaved in brothels, they were concubines, they were involved in what some call the fancy trade. So, they were women whose sexual—sorry, whose whose enslavement was really defined by um, the use of their bodies for sex. Um, and I am trying—I sort of start with those women because. They're kind of understudied, I think, in the history of U.S. slavery. We know a lot about um, the history of various kinds of labors that enslaved people were up to, be that um, agricultural labor of various sorts or um, the kinds of skilled artisanal labor that enslaved people were doing, particularly in cities. And we also know about the kind of reproductive abuse and use of enslaved women um, that was endemic to the entire project of racial slavery, which is, of course, the work that Jennifer Morgan has has given to the field. Um, We know less, I think, about the women who were involved in sexual labor that was not explicitly reproductive. So the women who I write about um, certainly... Uh, engaged in, or or um, you know, re- the work that they did resulted in um, reproduction, but that wasn't really the core of what they were doing. They were uh, servicing this other kind of space um, in the context of U.S. slavery, and uh, I
0: wanted to tell their stories. How did you become interested in the topic?
1: You know, I came to this to this project um, as someone who's interested in Black sexuality and really. I started this project as a graduate student um, who was much more interested in black feminist theory and black queer theory and questions that I think were more contemporary in their uh, application. And over the course of my first couple of years of graduate school, it became clear to me that to answer some of the questions that I had about race and sexuality that I was drawn to, uh, historical methods, but also to earlier periods of time. So I kind of came to this particular topic in a way by happenstance. Sort of like, okay, I want to think about race and sexuality. Well, New Orleans is a good place to ask those kinds of questions because it's got a pretty strong source base for um, for those kinds of questions. In part because of the tourist economy that was a part of New Orleans culture. You know, really from um, the beginning of the American period in the nineteenth century. So. Okay, I know I can go to New Orleans because that's going to be an interesting source base. I started doing research as a graduate student on Storyville, um, which Emily Epstein Landau wrote a really amazing book about, um, and thinking about uh, this sort of brief period of legal sex work in New Orleans. And I thought, okay, this is an interesting place for me to think about transgressive uh, Black sexualities. And as I was doing research in that area, I realized, well, oh, gosh, in order to figure out what's happening here, I think I need to look back earlier in time. And New Orleans was, of course, the center of the U.S. Uh, slave trade. Um, and so going back further in time from the late 19th century brought me right into the heart of um of the US slave trade um, in the antebellum period. And so I was still asking questions about sexuality, but I wanted to ask those questions in the context of US slavery. Um, And so that's kind of how I ended up here. I think I stayed with this project and stayed with these women because once I started moving into the law, I realized that there was this really um, striking, um, explicit and, a uh, very consistent articulation um, in the context of the statutory rape law, so like the legal doctrine, the big books that sit in law libraries and that, you know, that legislature legislators are producing uh, across the antebellum period, and certainly in Louisiana, which is that Black women were excluded from rape law in totally explicit terms, um, and so that to me was really meaningful because I knew as a student of African-American women's history, that black women were constantly under threat as enslaved women um, in the antebellum period. They were under constant threat of sexual violation. And I wanted to understand once I was sort of like in that soup, I wanted to understand, OK, what's going on between this um, endemic uh, presence of sexual violence against enslaved women and this uh legal absence and it was at first seemed to me like a contradiction and then it became clear pretty quickly that actually the absence of um rape law for black women their their exclusion from it was actually exactly the thing that facilitated their violation um, because it's not illegal it's not a crime so anyway then I was just in it. (laughs) I was just sort of, then there was that puzzle in front of me. And um, I think I did a lot of like following, following down rabbit holes. You know, I, I think sometimes as historians or as students of history, I think as a student, I thought that historians were extremely systematic. And certainly there are lots of historians who are extremely systematic. Um, I wasn't so systematic. I think I was like following hunches, following leads, finding stories, looking at cases and saying, oh, I want to know more about this person. Oh, what's happening here? And so, you know, it's that kind of process that accumulated into what is now this book.
0: You were successful. I can say that. Those <laughs> rabbit holes, they led somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out as a magnificent pro- um project you mentioned um about the source base you mentioned that it was interesting in new orleans what sources did you find um and were able to use
1: uh well i the core source base for this project um are the records of the louisiana state supreme court so all of the women that i write about um in detail anyway the women who sort of are at the core of each of the chapters of the book um are women who brought lawsuits, Um, they sued for their freedom, um, which is in some ways quite specific to the history of Louisiana, which I'm happy to talk about later if you want to. But in any case, um, their court cases um, are this treasure trove of um, really detailed, interesting documents that... um, you know, have trial records, have um, have testimony, and they really provide this really interesting perspective on and texture for uh, everyday life in antebellum New Orleans. So I use those court records, and I kind of use those as the as the centerpiece um, uh, to tell these stories. And then I buttressed that with all kinds of other stuff. So I read slave narratives, some of which I read closely in the um, in the book, but. Uh lots of others are kind of just were part of my general uh, source base because they're really important sources um, that are authored by formerly enslaved people, by self-emancipated people. Um, and in the case of Harriet Jacobs' narrative, which is kind of at the core of um, the second chapter of my book, um, you know, that's, you know, one of the very few extant narratives that we have that is written by um A self emancipated enslaved woman in the US. And so it's just a really important source, and I want to take that really seriously. Um, Then I also looked at legal doctrine. So if I was reading the cases, one thing that is interesting, I think, about um, using legal sources um, as a historian is that when you're looking at cases, it's usually because. Either something has gone wrong um, or somebody wants to make it clear to the court, to the state, to the public that something's gone wrong. Uh, And so that's how that's that's sort of how cases develop, right? Somebody uh, is an active participant in the law and brings some some piece of information to the attention of the public. But that all happens in the context of statutory law, which is the law that's written by lawmakers. And lawmakers write these big books that basically, I think, are a window into what they wanted to see in their world, um, to the kind of like plans that they had for what they wanted to prevent happening, for what they wanted to facilitate happening. All of that is in the law books. And so I read a lot of legal doctrine to try to understand um. Kind of what the plan was in the eyes of the white supremacist lawmakers who were running the Louisiana Territory in that period, and so in between um, the doctrine and the cases, I felt like I was getting a better sense, a more full sense of um, of the of kind of the legal and social landscape of this place. Then I used um, newspapers. I used um, notarial documents. Um, so the Notarial Archive in, in uh, Louisiana and in, and in New Orleans is the place where like birth records, death records are kept, but it's also um, a place where acts of sale exist. And so those are really helpful to me to kind of trace um, where women were um, and who uh, claimed ownership over them um, at various points. And some of the cases that I uh, that I write about include disputed, disputed chains of... Um, of of kind of custody, basically, or 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 of ownership. Um, where an enslaved woman saying, I should be free, and the owner saying, No, you shouldn't. And so going and looking at that act of sale and saying, okay, what's in that contract was interesting and important for me. Um, and I used some visual sources, I used some maps, you know, I got a lot of help from really tremendous archivists. Um, some at the Library Company of Philadelphia, um, some at the John Carter Brown Library, up here in Providence, at Brown University, um, and then certainly at various locations in New Orleans, particularly the New Orleans Public Library. So um, I was also really like following the the lead of archivists who would say, oh, there's this really interesting source over here. And that would then drive, you know, bring me into little pieces of ephemera that I never would have found on my own, little random documents that were just kind of interesting in giving me a sense of the texture of the place. So anyway, the short version of that answer, I guess, is I used court documents and then sort of-
0: You did. You were able to craft a very masterful narrative um, with all of the sources that you were able to use. Now, you acknowledge that there were some challenges that you had to face as a black feminist historian in writing this text. What were some of those?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there are, his, there, there are challenges that, um, that all historians face around sort of sources and our ability to like accumulate sources in the first place and then to analyze them um and you know the preface of my book is really was my like attempt to articulate and to meditate on the particular kinds of archival challenges that existed in this project which I wanted to be clear were not really problems of absence. So, you know, I came up in a moment in the field of African-American women's history and Black feminist theory in which Sadia Hartman's work, particularly Venus in Two Acts, um, which came out while I was in graduate school, you know, really shaped and I think ignited some really important methodological conversations in um in my field. And, you know, I think the work of um, people like Sarah Haley and especially Marisa Fuentes has totally shaped kind of my worldview as a historian, right? Thinking critically about sources, thinking about the ways that the archives that we work in are in some ways, um, they're not doomed to failure, but they really shut you out um, as a thinker and and, you know, the, they are indices of the kinds of violence that enslaved women endured more than they are indices of almost anything else. And so if you're someone like me and you say, well, gosh, I really want to understand what their experiences were, then you should presume that's going to be really hard. <laughs> um, so that was like the baseline kind of problematic, I guess, that I assumed going into this project because of the conversation that I was immersed in. Um, but I think that conversation has sometimes overly emphasized and I, sorry, let me be clear. I don't actually think that either Hartman, Haley or Fuentes have done this, but I do think sometimes the way that the conversation has traveled has overemphasized archival absence as opposed to what Hartman and Fuentes are saying, which is that, um, It's not exactly a problem of scarcity as much as a problem of what actually is there relative to what you want to know and how we as Black feminist historians can develop ways of reading that allow us to continue to do the work. So I think that as I was writing this book and as I was starting to teach, I found myself in several conversations, often with my students, in which I think they maybe had misinterpreted um, that kind of black feminist historiography conversation, and they would come to me and say, "Well, I want to do a, I want to do a project about um, you know enslaved women sexuality, but you know, there's no archive, so too bad. And that drove me crazy <laughs> because <clears throat> there's an enormous archive. It's really complicated. Um, but there are so many sources. And they are still here and they are still speaking. And I don't I I just like hate the idea that um, that drawing our attention to the complexity um, of these archives and the rigor that they require um, is some kind of invitation to just sort of say like, well, Black women's histories are too difficult. Let's walk away. And I think a little bit about someone like Sam Pinto's first book, Difficult Diasporas, and the ways that Black women get marked as difficult. And I worry, and this is part of what I'm trying to get through in the preface of the book. I worry that sometimes we might encounter these difficult archives, difficult because they're painful, difficult. They require endurance, difficult because they're confusing and contradictory. Difficult because that kind of aha moment of hearing a sort of like self authored voice of an enslaved woman is so rare that like we then encounter that difficulty and it can slide too easily into that kind of trope of black women are difficult and black women's histories are difficult and walk away. And that is very much not the ethic of African-American women's history. That is not the ethic of the field that I belong to. The ethic of, of the field that I belong to is a, is an ethic that says like women were there, we have to keep trying. Mm -hmm. And so I was really wanting to dialogue in my book about, in terms of the methods that I engaged with about abundance, about the weird abundance that is, um, that is is the basis of my book. Like I wasn't working with scarcity. I was working with hundreds of pages of material. And those pages were really weird. And uh, they were not simple or easy. And they are not even really representative um, of histories of Black women in the Antebellum South. But they're interesting. And they told me a lot. And so I think that that was, you know, in terms of that like what are the challenges of black feminist history? I think part of the challenge is grappling with these complicated archives, but I think also part of the challenge is to kind of keep encouraging our students, our graduate students that the the work has always been in this field, you know, from the first essays that Deborah Gray White was writing about the archive in the 80s, like the work is to sit with it and uh, and figure it out and to struggle with it. And I think that's actually where the really exciting stuff is. So that's what I tried to communicate in this book
0: and you did and you really really did cuz you're right you know we're in a generation now going from Deborah Great White where you do have Hartman and you've got Fuentes and they just keep pushing and said don't give up you know especially with Fuentes she says she spent many years in the archive doing this don't give up it's there but as you say you have to really be willing to do the work look at the sources in a different way and take what you have and work with that and that's important and that is something that you did, especially in your book, and you're inspiring a new generation of students now. Um, You've entered that dialogue to be able to help us grow and move forward as well. Um, And one of the things that you talk about so masterfully in this book and that you really highlight and show is the culture of violence that is within this period, um, especially during the late 18th into the um, early 19th century as all of these events are transpiring. Can you speak a little bit about the violence of what's going on during this period and how just normalized that is right now?
1: yeah sure um thanks for that question i think that um you know thinking about violence is at the core of what i do um and i think that i am particularly interested in violence that i think of as as ordinary so as violence that is um repetitive it is daily it is baked into a society and sometimes that looks like structural violence like big institutional things but I'm actually really interested in interpersonal spaces and the ways that structures like the law, like um, like the kind of rhythms of an economy, then manifest in these really intimate interpersonal spaces. Um, and I'm also really interested in the ways that um, if we're not really careful, we can start to think about interpersonal spaces or relation or intimacy as um, Sort of like inherently positive um, or nonviolent, and that violence is this thing that like kind of intrudes upon intimate space. Um, and I think that feminist theorists have for a very long time, like I sort of situate myself in the in a long line of feminist theorists who say, like, oh no, like uh, violence and intimacy have everything to do with one another. They're not, it's it's not one or the other, it's sort of gradations of of each. And so I really wanted to understand. Both the kind of like structural systems that were shaping the li- the lives and the life chances of the women that I was thinking about, um, you know, I wanted to understand the, the kind of mechanisms that made it possible for a girl who was born enslaved, I mean, a girl who was born free, to become enslaved. Like I wanted to understand that. How does that happen? Um, but also, I wanted to understand and it. I guess they're kind of similar. Like I wanted to understand how that felt on a day-to-day level. And frankly, I think the answer in one way to that structural question for me lies in intimate space, has to do with how disempowered that girl is when she's surrounded by grownups and she's five years old or 10 years old. Like that to me is actually really important, linking the structural and the intimate. Um, anyway, so in terms of like, what is the violence that I'm writing about, I'm writing about, um, things that would be, I think, pretty familiar to folks who think about slavery. So the kinds of what I call acute violence beatings and, um, uh, the kinds of violence that leaves a person broken, bruised, scarred, bleeding, um, but I'm also really interested in slow violence. So deprivation, malnutrition, which is also very familiar to historians of slavery, thinking about the ways that um, uh, enslavement, uh, like lack of sleep, malnutrition, repetitive stress injuries took years off of people's lives, made it impossible for them to reproduce. Um, And then I think the core of my project is interested in I guess, you know, I I use the the word culture as a way of capturing that, like, texture of everyday life, Um, you know, so what it means to be a person who has... Um, who might encounter acute violence in the morning and then be walking around in the city on your own in the middle of the day and then return home to a place where you are literally owned by the person, the other person who lives in the house. Like, I want to understand that. What is that about? What does that feel like? And what is the world that that is built out of? Um, So that's, that's, I think, what I'm trying to do in the book. In a way, it's a little bit hard to to describe what is the culture of violence, because I think that that's in some ways synonymous with asking the question, like, what is slaveholding society? Um, you know, I, I, that's basically what I want to understand. Like, what did it feel like to be an enslaved woman in New Orleans in 1810? Like, I want to understand that. And I think that's inseparable from understanding that violence and threat um, were everywhere all the time.
0: Right. It was, it was nothing that you really walked away from. And you also discussed normalized, how normalized sexual violence was during this period, that it wasn't something that just happened like in a space. It was very normalized. Can you talk about that also?
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that question. I think that um, so for a while I was toying with the phrase structural sexual violence, which I think probably appears somewhere in the book, but that's not what I ended up moving toward. I ended up moving toward or like centering the language of ordinary violence and talking about normalized sexual violence, because what I'm really, what I found in these archives were not those kind of um, spectacular events of sexual violence, Um, which I think is how like contemporary media all the way back to like 19th century sentimental novels depict sexual violence that women endured then and endured now, um, which is to say, you know, the rapist who jumps out from behind the bush, right? Like that kind of like momentary event That's not what I saw in my archive, and I think that what I see in my archive is actually completely um, aligned with what feminist historians and feminist theorists and anti-rape activists have been seeing in their archives and in their experiences and have been saying for a very long time, which is that sexual violence actually very rarely happens in that kind of event-based way, but instead happens in all kinds of other ways. It happens through threat, which is really... really important part of what I'm trying to get at in this book. It's not just about the literal moment of physical contact. It's about an entire world that is shaped by the threat of that moment of physical, of, of forced physical contact. It's also not about force in a kind of simple physicalized way. So the way that rape is defined in 19th century rape law requires, um, requires evidence of physical force, which means like requires evidence of, of harm to a woman's body. But most of the sex that I write about in this book, um, is happening under circumstances in which the women have no power, have no capacity or little capacity to, um, to, uh, change the situation that they're in. Um, and, you know, are not, um, are not, uh, able to maneuver out of any given moment of sexual or erotic contact. And they are enduring, um, physical sexual contact or the possibility of physical sexual contact all the time. So whether that's through the way that someone is looking at someone, the way that someone is, um, Touching them, the possibility that that touch is always possible, that's all there as part of their sort of experiences and their lives. Um, And so that sense that, uh, that sense of a singular moment being the way that we describe and define sexual violence just felt really inadequate to me because that's not what I saw with the women in my book. What I saw was women who were. Um, encountering serialized daily sexual events. And that really drew my attention to a set of questions that I don't really ask explicitly in the book, but that I I do think are really um, part of my intuition as a writer, which is that I wanna understand how that kind of dailiness, daily encounter with violence, daily encounter with threat, daily encounter with sex, with someone who owns you, um, how that changes the meaning of the encounter, um, or does it change the meaning of the encounter? I think that that's kind of like, that kind of underwrites the question for me. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: I, I really, I must say at this point, I've really enjoyed how you created this analysis and, and I'm very glad that you said, you know, especially with the media and how people just think about rape as this one singular moment in time, you know, and how it's always been portrayed and that you have like this, you think of it and it's always kind of in the mood. You have this boogeyman that jumps out as you're walking down. Um, but it's not quite that. And you were, you were able to show that it's a much more complicated than that. Um, and I definitely want to give you credit for doing that.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I do feel like, you know, the the narrative of the boogeyman is is untrue in the present as much as it is untrue in the past. And I think that the the part of like what I'm trying to argue for when I look at the encounters that these women had and the ways that like they very rarely talk about actual sexual contact, but you know, it's happening, right. You know, it's happening because of the kinds of injuries that they sustain, you know, it's happening because of the pregnancies that they sustain and, 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 and that they endure. Um, Like there are all of these clues to the literal moment of sex, but the thing that they're talking about is feeling terrified. The thing that they're talking about is like, whether or not they will be able to feed their children. The thing that they're talking about is, is about the kind of like, expressed material conditions that shape their day-to-day life. And that singular moment of sexual contact or that daily moment of sexual contact is fully imbricated with everything else that is shaping their life of enslavement. And I think that I wanted to really, I wanted to really emphasize that because I think that that's totally coherent with the contemporaries that women experience Um limitations on their life chances. When you think about domestic violence and intimate violence, when you think about sexual violence and sexual assault, when you think about sexual harassment, particularly in the workplace, but elsewhere as well, what we're talking about are patterns of behavior. Um, What we're talking about are particular sites of physical or sexual threat that are totally interwoven with other things like, can I feed my children? Can I keep a roof over my head? Can I, if I leave, what will happen to me? Will it be worse than if I stay? And so I think I really wanted to, I really wanted to presume that level of complexity in the lives of enslaved women. um, And to, and and they demanded it, you know, like (laughs) the stories that they told demanded that I kind of look at them and say, oh, wow, your situation is really complicated. It's actually not, it's not just a straightforward binary situation of like, your life is good except for this moment, or you're experiencing physical, physical harm except for this moment when it's sexual. It's like, no, it's all, it's all made meaningful together.
0: Right, right, it's, it's, it's not one or the other. They're all interwoven together. Um, now the women, as you mentioned, that you study in the book, how representative would you say they are? As enslaved women, are they um, representative, or are they more exceptional? Yeah,
1: uh, I have no sense that they're representative <laughs> um, <laughs> of women in the antebellum who were enslaved in the antebellum South. Um, they were, first of all, they were anomalies because they sued for their freedom, and you know, of the vast numbers of enslaved women over the course of American slavery you know, it's an extraordinary minority who sued for their freedom. I think it's it's a less small minority than maybe we would have thought before Kim Welch's really great book about antebellum litigants. Um, uh, but nonetheless, like, it's not something that most enslaved women are doing. So by that frame, they're already super exceptional. And also, they were um, women who sued sometimes successfully, but also like their their cases went to the Supreme Court in the state and so they had a lot of connections, um, that to lawyers, but also to other kinds of people who could facilitate those lawsuits. Um, and that's totally anomalous. Um, they were also—I don't know, because I have—I don't have images of any of them, and I have some—I have some visual descriptions of. Uh, I guess all of them I have some kind of vis- visual description but in any case they all were very light skinned. Um they were women who were enslaved and in some cases sued on, be- on on the basis that they were white and in other cases it's clear from the testimony of various witnesses in their cases that they either um were passing as like a legal white wife or they had blonde hair or whatever. So they they are women who um, are really living in the context of the racial chaos of the antebellum South. Um, and they're exemplary of that, I guess. Um, but that doesn't make them representative. There are also women who live in urban slavery, which I think, you know, there's really wonderful um, scholarship on Women, who, women and enslaved people generally who existed in um, urban contexts, but certainly the majority of enslaved people in the U S South were not living in urban contexts. So they're not representative. Um, I think that's okay. <laughs> um, it is. You know, yeah. I, I think that there's other ways <clears throat> to tell stories in history and to see something meaningful and generalizable about, um, about a social world um, than sort of gathering representative data. I think that representation and sort of gathering representative data is one of the hallmarks of kind of the new social history. And it's really, really important. Um, uh, And it's also not the only thing, not the only way to kind of tell us something. So I use their stories and sometimes I use them as a kind of metonym that can like be a mirror into this broader kind of context. Sometimes I use their stories to connect to broader legal trends that I think are very much um, sort of like constitutive of the lives of lots of people, not just of these women. Um, And sometimes I'm pretty straightforward about the fact that like their life isn't like somebody else's life, but I still think the story is interesting and important and tells us something bigger than their singular life. So I definitely am not writing stories of representative women, but I'm hoping to make the case. And, you know, I guess readers will let me know if I've made the case that these stories are interesting and important, kind of irrespective of their ability to represent the stories of lots and lots of enslaved women.
0: As one particular reader right now, I can say they most definitely are. And I hope that others can say that as well. But from my own experience, I would say they are definitely interesting and worth learning more about. Um, These women, they are able to tell us a lot about what's going on during this period, as you say. And there's a particular term, which I really loved that you created um, the Antebellum Atlantic. Can you please explain that? Sure. Because um, I, yeah, I loved that. it. I
1: loved it. I say that again?
0: I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Oh, thanks. Um,
1: so I, let's see. <laughs> to answer this question, I want to talk about New Orleans. So this book is about New Orleans, but it's also not about New Orleans. So I think that, you know, that question of representation versus exceptional um, characters in the book I think actually that is something that I grappled with much more about the place of the book than about the women in it. So like pretty pretty early on I was like I'm writing about these women because I want to write about these women and that was that for me like the question of representation was not that deep for me. The place though was something that I really had to grapple with because New Orleans has this very uh, pronounced history of understanding itself as a city and of historians and other people understanding it as a city that is exceptional, that is unlike other places. And um, in some ways, I found that to be true. Like New Orleans has a lot of sources having to do with that are available that you can read that are that are um, more explicit than some other places about about sex, about sexual slavery, about the sex trade, like there's more stuff there. So in that way, it's an easier place to do the kind of work that I want to do than some other places. And that does make it unusual. In other ways, I think that it, that the story of New Orleans being um, exceptional, particularly the story that's told by pro-slavery Southerners in the antebellum South about New Orleans being exceptional is a way of containing a bunch of Um, legal, social, and sexual norms that existed across the whole South. Uh, and imagining that they only happened in New Orleans, imagining that New Orleans was this place that was so different from the rest of the South that was magnifying a set of sexual practices that were like much more mellow in places like North Carolina or Georgia or Arkansas. And I found that legally that's not true, that we can see the continuity between the laws that are passed in Louisiana having to do with sex and sexual violence and the laws that are passed across the U.S. South. Um, But also um, that that story that is available. I mean, it's, it's available everywhere. It's in travelogues from the 19th century all the way up to like, you know, a brochure if you get off the plane in New Orleans today. Like there's just all of this this material, this, this storytelling that's available about New Orleans that it's just different. And I found that to be untrue. And so I developed this term, the Antebellum Atlantic, to try to situate New Orleans as a city and to situate the women that I write about in this book um, in a geography that um, could describe both the things that people in their own, in that time, and I think to some extent today, um, used to talk about New Orleans as like really different, and to acknowledge those things, and also to think about the ways that New Orleans was very much continuous with the rest of the U.S. South. And so, you know, I talk about the ways that In U.S. slavery studies, anyway, I think this is different depending on what historiography you're really rooted in, but the kind of training that I received and the way that I trained my students, you know, we often think about the Atlantic world as this time of of slave, uh, the Atlantic world as having a time period, first of all, the Atlantic world as, you know, the early modern period, you know, as early as sort of the 15th century, going up to the age of revolutions. Like, that's the kind of, like, heart of 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 Atlantic slavery. That story, of course, has to ignore the South Atlantic, because Brazil is booming as a kind of Atlantic slaveholding economy all the way through to the end of the 19th century. But nonetheless... The way that Americanists tend to talk about the Atlantic world is to really talk about the British Atlantic and to some extent the French Atlantic and to really think about the Caribbean as the heart of the Atlantic slaveholding project in the 18th century. And then to think about uh, the rise of what becomes the United States at the end of the 18th century and sort of like everything that happens after the age of revolutions as, uh, as kind of like U.S. history or the antebellum period. And um, I'm looking at this city, New Orleans, that has a lot of characteristics in terms of culture, language, uh, racial kind of caste system, um, and sexual cultures um, that look and feel and reference these places that I think Americanists tend to think of as the eighteenth century, as places like Havana, as places like Bahia, as places like Bridgetown Barbados. You know, like I think that as Americanists, and again I keep emphasizing that this is this is an issue in the Americanist historiography, I think much less than in other historiographies. But nonetheless, I think as Americanists we tend to think about New Orleans as kind of like harkening back to this period of these like European imperial port cities and that the rest of the antebellum South was moving on, was moving toward this thing that we recognize as um, a deeply U.S. project, a project that is rooted in imperialism in the attempted genocide of native peoples of a kind of westward migration and the um kind of rollout of plantation economies and the cotton kingdom Um, and i think that new orleans is both and actually the us south is still very much not just new orleans but the whole us south is very much in conversation with that imagined atlantic past um, and with the Atlantic pet present that is very much still there, still booming, complicated, but there through the whole antebellum period. And that New Orleans is also it is facing west. It is it is a place that is conversant with culturally, but also just in terms of the literal movement of bodies with places like Texas and the imperial frontier. And so I'm trying to use that phrase, antebellum Atlantic, to say, okay, if we start a story in the antebellum period in New Orleans, we can look north and we can look south. We can look west and we can look east. We can think about all of these different places as sharing kind of cultural cognates, Um, you know, it matters that people in North Carolina know what a quadroon is. It matters that people in, you know, middle of the 19th century Philadelphia are making cartoons that reference the Haitian Revolution. Like, those places and times are not separate. And so that's what I'm trying to get across in the Antebellum Atlantic, um, is to try to say, let's think about these two periodizations and geographies as actually simultaneous Um, and what happens to our field of vision and to our sense of like what makes sense versus what doesn't make sense if we see these things as congruent with one another. The other thing that's significantly more simple is that I made a bunch of maps for this book um, with the help of a GIS specialist at my university, Lynn Carlson, and with my amazing research assistant, Lyle Cherneff. And, um when we were making those maps, one of the maps that I wanted to make was just like showing the migration patterns of the women in the book because they move around a lot. And, you know, that map required us to include Haiti and it required us to include Boston. And uh, I wanted a map that that sort of could show all of that. And for me, that was the Antebellum Atlantic.
0: And it worked out very well. That is all that I can say and to other readers are able to take a look at everything. It was phenomenal. Uh, and we keep mentioning. So I, we keep mentioning the women that we are talking about in the book. So let's kind of talk a little bit about these women. And I want to start with Delphine. Um, her journey at the end of the 18th century. What can her journey specifically Delphine tell us about this 18th, late 18th century going into 19th century world that she is inhabiting during this time?
1: Yeah. So Delphine, um, Delphine's case was one that I read as a graduate student and didn't include in my dissertation because I really struggled with it. I struggled to understand it. I struggled to find meaning in it. And I struggled honestly, just to read it something about her case, and the way that violence is articulated in that case um, was really hard for me. Um, And I think that the reason why uh, came out in the chapter that I ended up writing as the first chapter of this book, which is called Ordinary Violence. So Delphine um, was an was a freeborn born girl, um, who was born into a family in Haiti that was kind of complicated in terms of like, it was a mixed status family. Some people were enslaved, some people were, um, legally free. Um, and after the revolution or during the revolution, her family flees, they become sort of part of that first wave of refugees who leave the island, um, uh, in the context of the, the violent chaos. And, um, you know, her story in some ways really charts uh, the stories that Rebecca Scott and Jean Hybrid have written about in Freedom Papers and that Rebecca Scott has written about elsewhere as well, the kind of stories of um, Haitian refugees um, who eventually make their way to New Orleans. And I took a lot of um, I found those I found the work that already exists on stories like this super, super helpful, really foundational to my ability to tell the story of Delphine. Anyway, the thing that I think that she can tell us um, and that her story can tell us is the kind of incremental accumulation of um, vulnerabilities that can land a girl who was born free into enslavement and a kind of story of the fragility of status in this period of the age of revolutions. But more than that, which is a story that I think Scott and Hibrod really tell beautifully in Freedom Papers, that kind of like that fragility of of freedom in the age of revolutions. I'm really interested in the part that sex has to play in that fragility of freedom. Um, The ways that the free status that she was born with was contingent on and an expression of um, cultures of sex and transaction. Um and the ways that her enslavement was then later shaped by um by transactional sex, um, but then also um, the way that she tells stories about violence, which are so embedded in um, the rest of the story. You know, she spends her court case really litigating basically like one piece of paper, whether or not she's legally free depends on some paperwork. And so the whole story is really about like lineage and um, who her family was and what was happening during the war and all of these kind of political history details. And then there's this one moment in the case where she talks about the person who owns her basically like beating her up right after she gave birth and beating up one of her older children. And that's the thing that was so hard for me to grapple with was like, why is this a footnote in the case? Like, why is this not what she's arguing for or like using as like the core evidence that she should get free? And so I really tried to grapple with that in this chapter. Um, And what I've come to understand is that she understood, I think, that that was not really going to matter to that many people who were listening to her case. And so she was being really strategic about which parts of the case she highlighted and which parts she didn't. And I think that really tells us a lot about not just the way that violence was embedded in sort of just uh, the world that she lived in, you know, the kind of violence that could land you in a new city and suddenly you're enslaved, or the kind of violence that means someone takes a stack of plates and smacks smacks it over the head of your child. Like that stuff that's just totally in the everyday minutia. Um, mm-hmm. But also that she understood that the fact that violence worked that may, way meant nobody cared. Like I, I really think it sh- that's, that her story is a good example of the kind of intellectual savviness that enslaved women brought with them when they came to court. Right.
0: It was just like, wow, you as you mentioned, and I can see how you would grapple with that, you would think, you know, she's saying that she's beaten after she's given birth, and that her son has been beaten as well and physically harmed, that would be why she would be bringing her suit. But no, she did not. It's just like, and you, you masterfully tied this tied her experiences, um, to Louisa Paquette and what happened with her and the violence and how it is so normalized during this period, especially sexual violence, just, and also violence in general during this period. Can you speak a little bit about the connections between Delphine and Paquette?
1: Sure. Yeah. So this, this narrative of Louisa Paquette is such a weird narrative because it's really an interview. You know, she's, um, she's being interviewed by this, um, by this guy, Hiram, uh, what's his last name? I'm thinking Hiram Revels, but that's wrong because it's a Congressman. But anyway, um, Hiram Madison, Hiram Madison is this abolitionist who's interviewing her and he's a reverend and, uh, you know, he's fighting for the abolitionist cause. And so he's interviewing her and he's trying to draw out, it's clear from the, from the way that the interview works, he's trying to draw out like the parts of her story that are going to really make people in the North or, or in the South, but people who might be on that borderline of kind of wanting to join the abolitionist cause, make them really care. And the way that he does that is he highlights the kind of sexual violence that was totally part of her life. Um, but, he, but she is so interesting because of the ways that she resists him while still communicating the parts of the story that she cares about. And I love that about this narrative. I think that it's a it's such an excellent example of of that kind of culture of dissemblance, Darlene Clark Hine kind mm-hmm. of theory. Like she's just she's so careful in the way that she answers this question. So, anyway, the reason that I connected her to Delphine is because I I think rereading Paquette. Well, I was trying to, I really, this this Delphine chapter really, you know, it was a tough one for me to write. I just couldn't crack it. It took me years to crack this 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 story and to try to bring it together into something because it felt to me like there was this moment of acute violence that she was naming in the context of all of this other stuff that felt really important. And I didn't know how to bring them together. And rereading Louisa Paquette was actually what helped me to understand Delphine's story. In some ways, they're similar. They're light-skinned women who are Um, situated as concubines as like the kind of core of their enslavement. Um, But I think that, you know, in other ways, they're very different. Um, They lived kind of at opposite ends of the US antebellum period. So Delphine was in the early part and um, Louisa Paquette was at the end. Um, The texts that they are, you know, represented in are totally different. Um, But I think the thing that felt to me really similar about them, was the kind of, like I said, that kind of accumulation of vulnerabilities that led to their eventual situation as concubines. And uh, I love the way that Paquette describes that. So, so so, Hiram Madison, the guy who is interviewing her, really wants, he wants the goods. like He wants the salacious details about her experience. And he's really situating her, I think, through his questions as this kind of like pornographic, um, uh, like spectacle. He wants his readers to be like, oh my God, look what happened to her. And she's really, like I'm gonna be a lot more subtle than that. But the way that she answers his questions about like, well, what happened to you? What happened to your mother? Like, What does she look like? What do you look like? Tell us how light your skin is. Like, who's your father? You know, he's like probing. And she is instead drawing our attention to the really careful, strategic, um, uh, and like enduring work of slaveholders. And the ways that they kind of like broke her down and broke her kind of childhood naivete or innocence down over the course of her kind of like pubescent period until um, she says, so I understood. Like over the course of this set of cues and clues and demands that she was really confused by. She eventually realizes, oh, my job is to be a concubine. Oh, sexual violence, like that's the thing that that I am I have been situated to endure. And that really resonated for me with the kind of like slow plodding steps that were part of Delphine's story. The kind of like lots of twists and turns, you don't quite know what's gonna happen. I felt like Piquette's story and Delphine's story. We're both similarly able to highlight the kind of contingency of um, violence and the ways that violence is multifaceted and really confusing if you're enduring it and you're like a kid. You know, I think Delphine's story is in part really hard because the, the story starts when she's five years old and um, Honestly, I think becoming a parent really reshaped my ability to read that story and to understand the intensity of her vulnerability as a small person. And I think Paquette also really amplifies that. You know, she starts her story as a child, and most of the core drama of her like realization of sexual enslavement happens as she is, um, you know, a young adolescent. And so I think that I wanted to draw out the. I think that together they really amplify the particularity of vulnerability for enslaved girl children, um, not just sort of enslaved women as this big block, but of of that sort of you know uh, the trials of girlhood, as as Harriet Jacobs says, right? This this like particular moment of realization of like, oh, this violence is is everywhere and it is continuous and it is now the shape of the life that I live.
0: Right. That. That was masterfully done, I will say, bringing those two together and being able to show that because it leads, it segues so nicely into your next chapter where you talk about the trials of girlhood with Harriet Jacobs um, and how, and this is where I want to get into this notion of, you mentioned consent, and how important consent is throughout your narrative, but also to sexual encounters of with Black women, especially during the 19th century. And especially you can see that shown with Jacobs and Dr. Norcom, how important consent was in his relationship with Yeah, her. I mean, I think that the
1: core argument of this book is that consent is not um, a sort of like inoculant or protectant against violence for women. Um, uh, but is instead actually a vector through which particular kinds of violence can be amplified. Um, I think that Dr. Norcom and the way that he pursues Harriet Jacobs is a really good example of, um, the way that consent or that kind of request for sex, um, can actually be itself a weapon, a technology of domination, as opposed to the thing that it's supposed to be, which is like, oh, now we've entered into this space in which everything is free and equal. And I think that thinking about transactional sex uh, throughout the book is the way that I have... Like, been able to see that because I think that the idea of the transaction is actually really embedded, or the contract is really embedded in in the idea of consent. So, like, I'm going to situate you in a transaction and that's going to make it free. This is going to be a contracting relationship and that's going to make it free. I don't think that Dr. Norcom was trying to make Harriet Jacobs free um, or that the slaveholders in this book were trying to make the women that they were um, having sexual contact with free. I don't think that they felt guilty about what they were up to. And I don't think that they were using consent as a way or like those moments of request as a way to make themselves feel better. Like, oh, it's okay because she wanted it. I actually think that it's way more insidious than that. And that, um, that the way that Jacob spells this out in her narrative is... It's so smart. I mean, she is such a theorist of violence in that book. Um, And what she shows us is that Norcom is using that request, right? That will you have sex with me kind of euphemized in any number of ways Um, that that request um, as a way of as one of many ways of structuring a threat. And so. When you have the the simultaneity of a request for sex in the context of a legal structure, in which that request is completely irrelevant, in which, as Norcom reminds Jacobs again and again and again through the book, he has the right to do whatever he wants with her body, he has the right to do whatever he wants with her children, he has the right to kill her if he wants to. He says that at one point, right? Like he's clear, she's clear that this request is part of a performance, a ritual of violence, as opposed to a kind of thing that would absolve the violence or would make it go away. And I just think that's super interesting and um, and really shines a light on the ways that, you know, consent as a inoculant to violence really lives in this liberal fantasy that if we say you're free, you're free, right? And I think that... Part of the project of my book is to really try to complicate the notion of violence, on one hand, right, that violence can happen even when it is subtle, even when there's a yes involved in the sex, even when, you know, there are these kind of rituals of um, call and response, request, denial, threat, you know, like all of that stuff is happening. That's still violence. I want to be clear about that in my book. But the other thing that I'm trying to do in the book, I had to do because consent is at the core of the project, which is that if consent is... um, Supposed to make us free, right? Um, And supposed to make sexual encounters good um, in the liberal imagination. And I'm showing that actually that's like really a, a a way, a mode through which slaveholders are enacting sexual violence. Then we've got to think about freedom in a more complicated way. And I think that. You know that's that's an, that's something I feel uneasy about as a scholar of slavery studies, but it just feels so loud and clear in this archive that the women that I'm writing about are not holding up this word called freedom as this like holy grail, but are instead thinking about their material conditions and um, and trying to make the best of whatever the moment is that they're in. But that that idea of consent as like you're free because you say, because I say you're free is I think as kind of empty as a, as a legal or political tool, as that kind of idea of like, you're free because I say you're free, right? Of, of, of freedom itself. So I'm not lambasting freedom and saying that freedom is totally bankrupt because of course the women that I'm writing about are very clear that legal freedom would be good. They want that um, for themselves, but they're also, I think, not seeing it as a panacea. And that's really what I'm trying to highlight here in the book.
0: Right. And you do that. Very well, because you also talk about, and you're right, this whole notion of freedom is more complicated in that you also show about the fragility of freedom, especially for these women who are involved in um, transactional sex during this period in the cases of Carmelte and and Anna Marie Barkley, you showed the fragility of what that is the kind of the other side of this notion of oh yes there's freedom but then as you say there's the day-to-day existence that goes with that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah I think that they I those chapters feel really twinned to me um because I think that Carmelite is someone who is um uh, she's working in a brothel, and she is so savvy in the way that she makes this legal argument. She basically says, "Like, well, I'm making contracts all day, and contracts are at the heart of liberal ideas of freedom. So, doesn't that make me like? Haven't I kind of backed my way into being a free subject by making all these?" Proposals? I mean, I just think it's so smart, right? And so she's kind of calling the bluff on, on, on. You know, I, I talk about in the book the fantasy of consent, right? The idea that that um, consent. If that, that, that the utterance of consent, the request, um, for consent, um, can kind of like magically, um, inoculate a scene from the kinds of structural power differentials that exist within it. And I think that she is in that chapter kind of calling the bluff on, um, on a legal system that says, well, you can't possibly be free, but you can do all those things that those legally free people do, right? So I think she's kind of trying to point out that contradiction, which I think is super smart. And then on the other side, that kind of twin chapter of Anne Maria Barclay, she's someone who uh, is also making lots of contracts, but she's doing it under the auspices of legal freedom. and her story, I think, really calls attention to the the material conditions that uh, under under which one can live their material free, their legal freedom, and the ways in which legal freedom is actually really insufficient for a woman like her um, to have to maintain the kind of um, mobility, material accumulation, real estate, slaveholding status that she has. All of that's actually totally dependent on being attached to a white guy who can say, "Yeah, she's free." So I think that both of them are, um, giving some texture to, I mean, my hope is that they're both giving some texture to this kind of like conceptual problem that I'm pointing to, which is that the notion of freedom is one that is, uh, uh highly problematic, I guess is the way to, is one way to put it, but like, you know, that it just doesn't mean that much. And that I'm trying to understand, well, what did these women think it meant? Um, and because it seems to mean so much, and yet when you kind of scratch the surface, There's any number of possibilities of what freedom might mean. Um, So anyway, I think those chapters are kind of trying to give some material texture to that. Um, And I think that both of those women are really sort of like savvy interrogators of the law. And they're saying like, Oh, I know about contracts. I know about consent. Like I do it all day. And so somebody needs to recognize that like, I am acting like a free person. And so shouldn't that mean that I'm rewarded with free status or the back end, right? Like I have free status, so why am I so endangered, right? Like I think that both of those chapters, both of those women are trying to uh, point on either side of the way that the conceptual ideal actually, you know, takes root in material life.
0: And it does, it does, especially I, I saw it <clears throat> so clearly with both of them, but coming to mind is Anna Marie Barkley's how, you know, she gets her freedom, and she goes to Ohio, but then what's interesting, she comes back, she does the go back to, as you said, the white guy, because that's how she's going to have a material existence of life, you know, this is what she knows. This is what she knows. And it's, in some ways, it's how she thrives, you know, because she's going to court to ensure that she continues to thrive.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, she's really gutsy. And I think that's, that's part of why I really like that, that story. Um, but yeah, I think that she, she, her narrative is like the, the, just like the plot points of her narrative don't really conform to the kind of linear story of slavery to freedom and the kind of ideological or like idealization of freedom as the place that everybody wanted to get to. Um, uh, and so, you know, she is, at first I found it kind of confusing, like here you are, you're enslaved and then you're in Ohio and you have free papers in your hand and you go back to New Orleans, what? But actually it makes perfect sense, right? Because that's where she has control of her material universe. And, um, and so I think I'm trying to bring some texture with that story to the idea of freedom and to complicate again. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's a similar kind of impulse to what I'm trying to do with ideas about sex and violence. Like I think at, at my Core as a historian, as a thinker, I look at these women and I assume, gosh, your life is as complicated as mine is. And I think like that's kind of what I'm trying to bring to the question of freedom. Like, I don't I don't know why I would think that a woman like Anne Maria interprets that question, how to get free, with more simplicity than I do. I mean, that's a really hard question to answer. And so I want to assume that she thinks it's hard too. And she's at, she's trying to answer that question for herself on lots and lots of metrics, legal metric being one of them, but not the only one.
0: Right. It's just, it's so fascinating when you think about it. You're right. You think about these and it's almost if like you have, like have this idea in your mind um, about what 19th century, what their experiences are. And then you have to kind of step back and say, okay, their lives are just as complicated as my life, you know, and you, and you have to think that and you have to put yourself into that mindset to kind of sort of understand what they were going through. the same challenges in some ways. Yes, they are different, but some of them are similar uh, as to the decisions as to why we do certain things. If you think about your own day to day life experiences and the choices that you make because you're thinking through the process, Um And these women as you've shown they were savvy enough and they were making similar they were having a similar thought process you know what is going to be the end game of all of this um is it going to be beneficial to me or detrimental in some ways um
1: yeah and i think and when right like i think that they're i think one thing that I try to talk with my students about is that the women who I write about and you know the the people who we're engaging with as historians who were just like living their lives in the past. You know, we have this long view of their lives. Like I look at someone like Anne Maria, and I can see the whole story of the case. Like I can read the case in a day. I know what happened to her, and then I can take some time to build in the details. But like I know by the time I get to the end of that case, what happened to her. Uh, what what the outcome was, and I also know what the outcome of the Civil War was, <laughs> and I you know like I I've got this long view on 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 her life, and she didn't have that long view. She she you know or someone like Alexina Morrison, who's you know the subject of the last chapter of the book, like she doesn't know when she files suit that the Civil War is coming. She doesn't know that, and so and and so I think that the and and she and nobody else. Knew what the outcome of the war was going to be. And so I think that that sense of not just not idealizing freedom, but also really trying to grapple with the momentary way that people are in the past and in the present making their decisions. That someone like Ann Maria is standing in Ohio and she's weighing the options that she has based on that moment she's not weighing them based on anything else not ba- based on sort of the outcome of her life that i have i'm privy to but she's not privy to at that point point. and so wanting to really like embrace that sense of contingency you know it's like basic basic historical practice but i do think sometimes it's easy to lose that um when we're studying the history of slavery and so it's really really important to me to be asking questions of these women on their own terms right like asking them gosh, why did you make that decision? And trying to like bracket for myself, the stuff that I know about the context that they were living in that they didn't know. Cause she was just a woman who was born in New Orleans, made it to Ohio and was like, okay, what do I do now?
0: Right. It's like, so how do I survive? Uh, and that's the decision she was making in that moment. What are my best options for doing this? Uh, and you mentioned a few moments ago, uh, you mentioned Alexina. Uh, Morrison, that very, very interesting last chapter that you have. As you said, she didn't know the Civil War was coming. She didn't know when she filed her suit what was going to be, but she was living in a moment. And obviously, the conditions with which she was living had become unbearable in many respects. Um, and as she goes, you know, to the jail and for us the question and says, hey, you know, I'm this— And as part of your physical description, blonde-haired, blue-eyed person, I should not be held as a slave.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. You know,
0: she has no idea. And yet she's sitting, in the question, for over three years. And then we've got events that are outside of her control. And a lot happens to her as well Mm -hmm. while she's in that moment, things that you think should not be happening to her.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really like that story. So Alexina Morrison, super interesting to me, has been for a long time, and she's been written about really beautifully by Ariella Gross and by Walter Johnson. And I think both of them were really interested in the kind of, like, um, the legal drama of race that plays out in her case. And, you know, she basically, like, if Carly comes to the court and calls the bluff on the idea that enslaved people can't contract and therefore are not free, um, Alexina comes to court and you know calls a bluff on the whole question of racial determinancy in slavery. She's like, well, here I am, I'm enslaved and I'm white. So that's a problem for you. Right. So I think, uh, you know, that's why other historians have gravitated to this story. That's why I gravitate to this story. The other reason is that the, the archive of Alexina Morrison's case is pretty rich. And so it's a, it's a story that's really tellable. Um, but I think that what I tried to do with her story was to uh, you know, going back to that conversation we had a few minutes ago about the Antebellum Atlantic, like, I really wanted to give my readers a sense of place. And um, I think that Alexina's story, because she moves around so much, um, is a good way to do that. So in a way, you know, I use this chapter to retell her story, because I think it's interesting. And I think the kind of legal moves that she makes around Her race and status are interesting, but also I felt like she was a good person who could help us see, um, a lot of overlapping institutions and overlapping cultural ideas about race that I think run through my whole book, um, And in a way, you know, the the title of that chapter is Seeing New Orleans Again, and no one is going to do this, but in my fantasy life, this is what I imagine. My hope would be that someone would read this book, and then read that chapter, and then go back through and read the book again. Because, again, like I said, no one's going to do that. But I kind of did that while I was writing. I thought that was going to be the first chapter of the book. And I moved it to the end, because in a way, it sort of helps us, I, I hope, I think Alexina's story helps us to see all of the dramas of race and and, and um, like racial categorization and racial mythology that I think are playing out in every single case in this book. I think, you know, the kind of institutions that she was hopscotching between um, are part of every chapter in this book. Her attachment to um, white men as a condition of this kind of, like, like it's as a condition of her fugitivity. Right. Um, and the ways that those attachments are, are themselves carceral, um, is part of every story in this book. Um, and so I wanted to, um, I, I kind of placed her at the end, but honestly, I, I struggled with whether or not she should be the first story or the last story, because in a way she sort of sets the scene and, I try to, in that chapter, like move with her, move with her footsteps through the city and through the entire sort of landscape that surrounds her story to think about where is New Orleans? What is this place? Um, And what are the kinds of like institutional structures and interpersonal cultural structures that shape the outcome of a woman like Alexina Morrison?
0: And you did. You are, And I can see where it would be conflicting to say, okay, do I want to start with this? Do I end with this? But I think placing her at the end, you are able to show and weave that thread. Because I, as I remember in the chapter, you mentioned, oh, as she's in that jail or where the courthouse is or where she is being held, what she could possibly see. And you were able to imagine like, oh, she might have seen Carmelite, or she may have seen Anna Barkley or this is where Delphine could have been. You know, it's like you you were able to tie them all masterfully together of what was going on at that time. And then lo and behold, you also mentioned and you tie it with you know, she becomes pregnant while she is there. She actually gives birth. So once again, you're showing the transactional nature of sex because obviously, even though she's technically supposed to be in prison at this point, she's having sexual relations with someone. One oh, of yeah. the I mean, I think
1: she's this really a lot. you know, she's yes. that's what I mean <laughs> of like these attachments to white men. She's I think that 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 her story really shows the ways that um the institutional boundaries are really porous and that the ways that spaces and particular relationships, you know, they, they change in terms of meaning, depending on what's happening within them. So like, in theory, she's in the jail for this long period of time, but she's not really in the jail. She's she's all all kind of other places, right? She's in homes. She's she's you know she's being put up by these different men. Um, she's being displayed um, as kind of respectable in a hotel. She's walking around town. Eventually, she has her own house that is like right next to the houses of these other guys who she used to live with, and maybe one of them is the person who you know um, uh, with whom uh, she had the sexual encounter that produced that child, Mary, right? So like, there's all of these, um, there's all of these slippages in terms of what is supposed to be happening and in her story. And I, I think that that's why I find her story so useful because it shows the ways that sex and violence are themselves together and everywhere. (laughs) So like in theory, sex, sexual transactions are supposed to happen in brothels and, um, physical like sale of people is supposed to happen in the slave market but oops those things are happening in both places enslaved women are working in brothels and sex is being sold in the slave market and by the way they're all happening on the same block and so i think that like that kind of porousness of meaning and of um of 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 action um is what's really like on the on the um on display in, in Morrison's case. And I think the other thing that honestly was just kind of a struggle in this, in this chapter and in working with, with, with this particular kind of cache of material, of, of archival material in this case, is like how to write a story about Alexina Morrison that acknowledged and drew attention to her, the ways that, the way that she looked really shaped the kind of maneuver that she was able to engage in. Right. She was light skinned and that made it possible, I think, for her to garner some attention. And that attention simultaneously enabled her to um, file suit because she had some support from various white guys in town. But it also absolutely shaped a kind of um, incarceration that she was enduring through that whole time. So I wanted to highlight that, but also I didn't want to recreate the spectacle that the men who were attaching themselves to her and manipulating her or that she was manipulating, you know, were, were creating, were kind of creating a frenzy around her and the, um, the court records and, and various other sources around this case, um, really they're part of that spectacle. They create that spectacle. There's so much, there's just so much language about, what she looked like, what she didn't look like, and so much curiosity and probing and poking. And so I really struggled in this chapter to kind of represent her story without asking her to stand back up on that auction block, you know, in front of us readers and for us to like be examining her. I didn't want to invite my readers to examine her. I didn't want to do that, but it was kind of tricky to figure out how to do that. And so I think what I wanted to do was kind of um, imagine that, that, we were going to examine the world around her from her perspective and, um, and, and so doing, we would learn about her, but really that she was going to be a vector through which we could see the city and the ways that she was made vulnerable by its institutions and by its occupants. And so that's kind of what I wanted to show there, but also the way that she herself was an actor in that, right? She was walking through the city, she was making connections, she was making observations, she was doing in the story. And so I wanted to kind of center that stuff as opposed to making her kind of a static object that we were looking at.
0: Right, and you did that. I will say, I will give you credit. You were able to take the lens off of her and put it on the surroundings, put it on New Orleans, and looking at that through her eyes, that was clearly shown in the last chapter. You could see it. And less so about her and more so about her surroundings and what that showed us about the period. You did that very well. Now, I want to ask you, after we've talked about all of this, what would you like readers to hopefully take away from the book?
1: Um, I just honestly, I really hope it's useful to somebody. <laughs> that's that's the main thing. I think um, I feel very much like uh, I sort of stand on the shoulders of giants, you know. And I think there's so much scholarship that has come before me and mentorship that has come bef- that that has facilitated my ability to write this book that I just really hope it's useful. And I don't yet know in what way it will be useful. And I'm kind of interested and curious about what various people will take from this. I think we all take what we need from different kinds of books. And I hope that this book has in it stuff that some people need. Um, I think for me, the things that are like core takeaways or like, you know, major things that I hope that I'm hoping people will take away from this um, are, I think, you know, the question of the law is really important to me. And I think that from a kind of like contemporary feminist perspective, you know, I think I'm trying to write this book in part to feminist theorists and feminist legal theorists, and in part to uh, historians of slavery and African American women's history. And I think from that first side, like, I, I think it's for feminist theorists and feminist activists, I think that I am joining in some ways a chorus of people who are really trying to um, call our attention to the ways that the structures that we think are the structures, whether they're political idea, political um, political ideas and ideologies, or um, like literal sort of material structures um, and laws and processes and policies, you know, to try to curb sexual violence. Um, you know i'm trying to join a conversation of people who are saying you know consent as a tool is not helping us as much as we want us to want it to help us who are trying to reshape what we think about when we think about sexual violence. And so in that way, I feel like, you know, um, I think about people like Samina Mullah who wrote a great book called the violence of care or, um, Rachel Louise Snyder who wrote this really amazing study of domestic violence called, um, no visible bruises. But there's this kind of like chorus of people who are saying, let's, let's look at the story, of of intimacy and violence and tell different kinds of stories. So move away from that momentary question, that event idea, and think about the kind of continuous nature, the everyday nature of violence. And so I kind of want to join in that story and to think about the idea of consent and in particular transaction um, as a real problem in the way that we think about and narrate sex um, sex and violence. Um, I think that you know the core, the the core thing for me, the core problem of consent is that it makes sex into a contract between two parties, and that contract um, locks women in to a fantasy that is not real, in which they have power in that situation, and sometimes that power is like that power differential is extraordinary and profound as in the case of the enslaved women I write about. And sometimes it's more subtle. But the point that I'm trying to make is that transaction has, you know, as long as I have been able to, you know, look so like as deep as 19th century U.S. law, transaction has been the hinge on which the violation of women becomes invisible. So the easiest way to undercut a rape claim is to say she wanted it. Um, and to say, like she said, yes, right. That the reason why we go on and on about he said, she said, is because that question becomes much more important in a in a um, in a framework of sex that centers that transaction than what happened, right? The the question of the inauguration of the sexual event becomes much more important than the harm that's been endured and can be evidenced. And so our attention around like what is evidence is like really misdirected. We're not thinking about women's bodies. We're not thinking about women's stories about their experiences. We're thinking about this this moment and whether or not, you know, the question of the consenting moment was like, you know, proceeded appropriately. And so I really wanna invite us to reassess consent as a tool to protect women against violence. I think for historians of slavery, um, my hope is that this story and this book draws our attention to the kind of complex and subtle and continuous and everyday nature of sexual violence, the ways that sexual violence was both explicit and kind of like everywhere in um, in the slave market and um, in slaveholding society. And I really wanna, just like lift up the stories of these women um, and really point to their, their savvy. I mean, I think that they they are demonstrating a kind of black vernacular tradition of legal theory um, in the way that they are engaging with the law um, and developing these kind of, um, you know, what, uh, 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 Mia Bay and, and Martha Jones um, uh, write in um, Toward Intellectual History of Black Women, you know, they talk about organic intellectuals. And I think of these women as organic intellectuals. They're women who are seeing the world around them and they are developing a theory of the law and they are engaging with the world from that place. And I really want readers to to take that away, um, to to read these stories and to see these women as Uh, as thinkers um, and as strategists and as women who are carving out ways to survive in the context of a society that is kind of hell-bent on their annihilation.
0: Oh, my goodness, Professor Owens, you (laughs) did all of that and so much more. And I can say that as a graduate student. But thank you for joining me today to discuss your new book. Um, Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Consent in the Presence of force. And I assure you, you will not regret it. There's so much that you can learn from this. Um, Thank you again for joining me today, Professor Owens.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I really am grateful to you for reading my book.